The Incomparable Number 127 February 2013 I am Dan Moore and I'm sitting in for Jason Snell, our usual host. And today we're here to talk about the many works of Aaron Sorkin. I'm joined by an all-star panel. I think we did this joke yesterday. When are they going to be here, Dan? They they keep not showing up when I go with you guys. They keep on missing their Uh, flights. We have two my stage, is this stage right? You know this. That's stage right, to my stage right, Serenity Caldwell. Hello, folks. Uh, Lex Friedman, who doesn't know anything about Aaron Sorkin, has never seen any of his shows. That's false. I have seen everything Aaron Sorkin. We only invite you to live shows when you haven't actually seen the thing. I don't belong here, that. I've seen it. Uh, Jeff Lex Carlson, a special it? guest. I am very excited to talk about Andy Sorkin. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, get off the stage. You're done. Cut. Uh, and a, a very ill, plaguey Dan Frakes, who's going to make all I'm of no this no longer sick. contagious, but you don't want to use this. So he says. Don't get too close, ladies and gentlemen. Later, don't use his mic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason we're all sitting far away. <laughs> I wanted him to be off the stage, but that was, that was next. Uh, Your theme so far is everybody get off the stage. So. Yeah, no, I know. I really just wanted to be me up here, and then... And then it's to be the, the best podcast ever. Uh, well, Jeff and I thought we should have opened this podcast with like us walking in through a few doors and having chatty, witty having, conversation. Yeah, having a really back and forth. This really should all be a walk and talk. We could walk during this. Can we the just? I mean, there's only there's only like twenty people here. They can just follow us around. I mean, if we're gonna do Aaron Sorkin, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I I didn't write any witty dialogue. I don't know about you guys, yeah. but. Did anyone write any witty dialogue to start us off here? No? Okay. Do we really need witty dialogue? Yeah. So, yes, we do. We do. I sort of witty dialogue. Somebody would have to start using a lot of statistics right away. Like, well, 87% of podcasts that try to use witty dialogue find that 17% of the time they're unsuccessful in those efforts. I'm really hoping that, uh, that, uh, that John Moltz, who's sitting back there, will hold up a sign saying America is a terrible country. And then... Yeah, okay, thanks. That's good. That's good. And then we'll go on All a rant. All he needs is a Sharpie. Uh, yeah, so as we've alluded to, we're talking about Aaron Sorkin, of course, who is the scribe behind many a TV show and movie and play. He's a playwright as well in his early career. Um, he started out, I think, I think he started out in theater and then moved to, to film. Uh, his earliest films include Malice, which I think has Alec Baldwin in it, if I recall. It's about a doctor. That's what well he hasn't really gone back to after that one. He kind of moved on. But then we have A Few Good Men, which, of course, I think was his first really big hit. Um, it started as a play. Right. Indeed. Uh, An American President, which is the West Wing season zero, I like to call it. Right. right. It's creepy to watch the American President because you're, why is the president helping out the Why is he president? the chief of staff? I don't why, why is the president Leo? Right. This is weird. And, and, and you, you know, you got um, Nancy McNally isn't, isn't doing her job. She's, it's crazy. Josh Molina doesn't have that many lines. Yeah. It's really strange. Well, uh, yeah, and then he comes back in the show as a different person later. I mean, yeah, it's very confusing. Martin um, Sheen got that like so, the, the best raise ever. Like you're an assistant, and guess what? Uh, now you're going to be the president. So good. It's pretty good. What, Surprise. What, what were your entries into Sorkin? Like, what was the first thing that you saw by him? Well, I didn't realize. It. He was Aaron Sorkin when I saw A Few Good Men. In fact, I didn't realize until last week that, oh yeah, that was Aaron Sorkin. You couldn't handle the truth is yeah, what you're exactly. saying? exactly. I always thought it was an American president was my entry into Aaron Sorkin, but I guess it was A Few Good Men. Dan, Morin, tell me, what were your thoughts on A Few Good Men? <laughs> this is a setup because Lex knows I haven't seen A Few Good Men. Oh. <laughs> Dan wait, wait. hasn't wait, wait, wait. seen it. 
It, it is one of only two things that, uh, that I haven't seen by Aaron Sorkin. That and Malice. I've not seen Malice. I've seen the both. I haven't seen anything past, what was that year, 1995? I haven't seen anything Lex, earlier than 1995 these times. Lex has been waiting for like two years to have a panel about Victory something he mine. has seen and Dan Moore has not. I, you know, I, my I wish I had watched it last night just to set you up for that. <laughs> my first Aaron Sorkin movie was The American President. I saw A Few Good Men many years late, as is my habit. Uh, but... I mean, I love The American President. And interestingly enough, my wife loves The American President, too. That's one of our three or four go-to movies. If we can think of nothing else to watch, we'll just watch that again. But she never got into The West Wing, where I feel like they... I mean, clearly one is much romance comedy -er than the other, but I feel like they're still very similar. It's unusual to me to like one and not the other. What about, what about you, guys? Jeff? Um, also, I would say... Um, Probably a, a few good men, but again, also not you know knowing that it was Aaron Sorkin. Uh, the, I think for me, the, getting into the the uh, the knowledge that there was Aaron Sorkin would be the uh, late and beloved Sports Night. Yes, one, and of, the, one of the best series. One of the best series, and and one that that really had like a, a strange start because I think that was like the first dramedy. I think that's when they. It was they, it was one they, of the first they, where they, they came had... up with that term. Right. It had it had it was set up as a as a thirty minute sitcom, very much like, you know, the formulaic, but it was strange because they did they had this whole issue with the laugh track where the first yeah. half of the first season has a laugh track. It gets quieter it and gets quieter. quieter and quieter. And it's not because the show gets less and less funny. The show actually gets funnier, but it's strange because you get it, it, I feel like that was part of the reason behind why it didn't catch on as much is because it was un, it was unconventional at that point. And interestingly, with that laugh track, it doesn't just get quieter; it gets more and more infrequent right, over sparse. time. And so yes. it gets yeah, startling when you hear it. And when they initially released the DVD series, they had the laugh track there, and fans complaining, oh, "They never wanted that laugh track there in the first place." So if you buy the DVD set now, you'll get it sans laugh track. If that's yeah, important, I have, to you. I have the horrible one with the laugh track. Yeah, I, I, I had that one, but I, I upgraded. Yeah, I don't know the the laugh track to me always. Remind me, all the laughs sound really nervous, and it sounds like they've suddenly they've laughed, locked somebody in the room, like laugh, damn it, laugh at this room, laugh at this room, laugh, at, laugh, 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 laugh. I get the idea that maybe they're unsure of whether or not they're supposed to laugh. Uh, uh, uh. Well, it also had that that definite feeling of somebody, not the writers, not the not the directors, like somebody in a boardroom somewhere was like, well, this is this is a comedy, so we need to impose this laugh track because I don't think any of the the creators wanted it. That was right. like, like, like something from up on I mean, high. That is a, is a typical studio decision, it sounds like to me. Right. Well, how many 30, I mean, go ahead. Uh, so how many 30-minute shows at that point did not have a laugh track? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about prime sitcom time. But there's something about it, though. When you watched Friends at that time or, or Seinfeld and you heard the laugh track, it just you didn't really notice it was there. But when you watch Sports Night, for some reason it, it was glaring. It's, it's very grating. Right. It's it was also. I, you're like, I don't know if it was the first, but it was you know a very early single camera com single yeah. camera comedy. And yeah. It was you know it, it felt very different from other television. Well, right. We're and it's now become kind of the, like the the standard in a lot of cases. We've got more and more shows that are that single camera comedy that doesn't have a studio audience, doesn't have a laugh track. The late great lamented Thirty Rock, which just ended. Um, and number, yeah. So I, I think he kind of pioneered that, but in some ways, the television audience wasn't quite ready for that that level of something that was not just about punchline, punchline, punchline. Well, ABC didn't really know how to market it. I mean, they were pitching it very much. I remember seeing the original marketing. Um, what was it? Ninety. It's ninety nine. Yeah. Ninety nine two thousand. Something like that. It's it's in the middle there because there's an episode in the second season where they deal with Y two K. That's right. 
But yeah, um, bright yellow, you know, bright yellow papers well, and everybody's happy and jumping up in the air. They fell prey to the fact that that was actually the marketing for all of ABC's programs that year. That was their shtick. And it didn't quite work Now it's work more yellow. The, the, you know, the knock that I hear against Aaron Sorkin in general, for people who, for whatever reason, don't like Sports Night as a good example. Bad people, what you're right. saying. Right. Her- but the, the challenge that happens there, I think, is that on Sports Night, as on The West Wing and every other TV show that he's done, these are characters who take their jobs very seriously. And on Sports Night, you know, the, the conceit is that they're, you're see, watching backstage at the makings of a Sports Center style show, uh, which to many of us, I think, is probably not the most important work one can do for his or her country. But they take it very seriously. You know, when something goes wrong, this is, it's, it's extremely high, personally taken drama for the, the characters involved on the show. And, you know, on the West Wing, when they're so upset and unhappy because, you know, people are shooting at each other in Kyrgyzstan, that's, that, there's a reason for them to be so upset. Because, you know, there's death involved. But is when it, on Sports Night... Kazakhstan and he accidentally said Kyrgyzstan? Is yeah. There? And then on, on, on Sports Night, when they're really concerned because maybe the game isn't going to end in time, so they're going to have to start their broadcast late, the stakes are very high to them and less high to the audience. Now, I really like the show. I love Sports Night. But the people whom I've heard complain about that show feel like, why are they taking this so seriously? Why are they so, so concerned? I think it's a fair... And the same thing happens on Studio 60. And, and some would argue the newsroom. Although right. that one gets yeah. a little closer to exactly. West Wing. I don't know. I feel like that is very much true to life, though, because God knows. I mean, as technology journalists, we've had plenty of times where... Why hasn't Aaron Sorkin written a show about us? (laughs) Oh, we get canceled after half a season, sadly. But, I mean, we have plenty of days when we're running around um, with our heads cut off, being like, oh, God, we've got to get this in, or else everything will go down in flames. I think The live blog crashed. People don't yet know about the new iBooks. But it's, it feels like life or death at that point. And no, it's definitely not. I mean, People having, are not having, getting shot. Having <laughs> been in the room when all of our like live blog coverage crashed, it was just like <laughs> we're sitting there in, in an Apple presentation like, God! Yeah. So I, I, it is very serious to the people involved. They're professionals. That's what they do. Uh, and, and, but he makes it more convincingly. And I think I was going to take slight exception to your comment about the West Wing versus Sports Night because I feel like in later seasons, which obviously aren't directly Aaron Sorkin written seasons, this is where the, the flaw comes in, which is they think they can make up for the fact that it's, you know, there are problems by making them these huge dramatic problems like these India and China are on the brink of war, but it doesn't work because it has no substance behind it. There's no subtext or anything. It's all just the over the top. That's really annoying. <laughs> Hello. Um, that's, that's they're our trying to of play you track. off. Yeah, sorry. Well, I also think that that uh, so some of the, what Sports Night did. I mean, you know, yeah, the 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 the, the words are escaping me. The topics were sort of, you know, like like small, contained behind the show. But they also, like, really tried to push into some of the things. Like, I remember some storylines about, um, weren't there, like, like a, a, a drug testing um, uh, scandal or, or something that they had to report on and they had to, uh, you know, like, like, do we reveal this information or not reveal this information? And... You know, for for something that was a you know a, a comedy, it seemed like he was sort of pushing agendas or you know pushing thoughts, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about. Seems to be a a, 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 a Sorkin aspect of um, uh, pushing a point of view, but 
it, it, it seemed like it was it was trying to push a, a boundary there, even though yeah, this is about a, a sports show, right? And then you know, trying well, to make there's it there's a whole episode they deal with a, a bomb threat. Someone wants to blow up their building because some radio host makes an you know insensitive comment. Why would someone want to kill us? Uh, well, I mean, all of his big TV shows have been. This is behind the scenes of what this business does, right? right. Whether it's the West Wing or it's Sports Night or it's a TV uh, news station or it's a studio, it's always. This is the nitty-gritty behind the scenes, the people who do what you see the front of. And, and I was less interested in Studio 60 because I didn't really care about nightclubs. But I love SportsCenter, and so I found it fascinating. Even though it wasn't SportsCenter, it was supposed to be, right? right. And I thought that was fascinating because of the topic. And I, was, and I liked, I liked policy, policy and politics, and so the West Wing got to me. But I do agree that I think, like, if you're not in the sports center demographic, sports night kind of is like, why do I care about this? Well, to be fair, I, I hate, I don't follow sports almost at all, and I'm not really a sports fan. I don't watch sports center. I love the, I love sports. But you're an Aaron Sorkin fan, and you'll watch because it's Aaron Sorkin. Well, I didn't even yeah. know at the time. I mean, that was that and West Wing, which started around the same time. Um, I think Sports Night was slightly earlier. Sports yes. Night had then, one season, and right. then he well, was doing both right, at once exactly. for a season. For an overlap. And so I didn't know until I started watching both of those that these were, this was the same guy. It was just, for me, it was the characters and the writing. And as someone, right. especially as someone who's a writer, I just, I really admire his dialogue. He's great at pacing. He's got great, you know, masterful dialogue of these various witty banter and things like right. that. The, the infuriating thing to me about Aaron Sorkin's talent, uh, since I don't have it, is... You know, he, it's not, first of all, I think it's impressive that he can, whether it's accurate, accurately depicted or not, he makes it feel like he knows exactly what it's like backstage at Sports Center or behind the scenes in the White House or in a newsroom. Like, it feels like he's done his research with the possible exception of uh, Studio 60. And then when you layer on that, it's not just his character's dialogue. His characters talk like many of us wish we were able to speak extemporaneously and... It oftentimes can take out some of the believability. I don't think most people have as many statistics and factoids at their instant recall as the characters on a Sorkin show, but I enjoy that fictionalization anyway. But it's the way he crafts his storytelling that I find very impressive. You look at, especially, you know, you can tell uh, when, when Sorkin stops writing The West Wing, when he leaves the show, everybody's IQ on that show drops by about 50 points, and the drama becomes totally different. And well, well, because they make it about... They, well, drama is conflict, right? So we need to make everybody angry at each other. Right. And you'll notice that season Josh Molina becomes a total jerk. People are just yelling at each other a lot. Right. Leo realize, is always angry. Yeah, no, there's never any common ground or any reconciliation part of it that, that sort of makes you feel like, oh, well, these guys at the end of the day are still friends, even if they're going through this, this tough spot right now. But the way he crafts his actual storytelling, where there's so many times when he, the, the narrative mucks about with time. Uh, even on a show like The West Wing or Sports Night, where you're, you'll see the story told slightly out of order. Um, or you'll see the same part of the storytelling from two different perspectives. And the, the, the only writer who I think can achieve that on his level is, uh, is Matthew Weiner with Mad Men, who occasionally does some of the same trickery. Right. Well, and you get, he, he is, of course, I mean, we often see the standard construction of a TV show where you've got you know, your A plot, which is your main thing going on, you've got a subplot. Sometimes they tie together. But I think in Sorkin shows, they almost always end up in some way interleaving in a way that you don't expect. Like Seinfeld. <laughs> Just like Seinfeld. It's pretty much the same. It's like if Jerry Seinfeld were president of the United States. That's the darkest timeline, Dan. But now, do you, 
I mean, I, I know exactly what my chief Sorkin complaint is, but I, I'm, I'm curious, since it's clearly that this is becoming a Sorkin love-in, what are our issues with Sorkin? What, what don't you like? So I'll, I'll say that um, when the West Wing was out, I was at, when it first came out, I was not in technology. I was actually a public policy analyst. And uh, to see a TV show where there were smart people talking about policy and people knew what they were talking about, I was like, this is awesome. But I went back and I've been re-watching it, and I'm like, man, this is preachy. I mean, wow. I, I still love The West Wing. I think it's one of the best TV shows. But it's very preachy. And not, not that it's a bad way or, or in a bad way or a bad thing, but it's very, like, he thinks everybody just doesn't get it and he wants to teach them. And I think that, that's one of his flaws sometimes is he goes a little too overboard at trying to say, you don't know this, you need to know this, and I'm going to tell you for the next hour. And, um, and so I think that grates on a lot of people. I think that's one other thing that some people don't like Sorkin for is that sort of storytelling. I think that, that um, his, his construction um, is, is sort of uh, admirable and frustrating sometimes because you'll have things where, you know, you'll definitely have things that are, that, that are building up to something. And then, um, which is good and, and it's a, like really good technique, but then you get to that something and you realize that, oh, this is basically like, like the thing that I wish that I had said when someone said something mean to me. Yeah, and, the and like, 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 like yeah. three hours later, oh, like this is what I would have said if I was there. The Only- jerk store called. What? The jerk store. Oh, okay. Seinfeld. Go ahead. There you go. I, I actually did not watch Seinfeld. Sorry. This isn't about Seinfeld, Lex. <laughs> I've seen no, that I mean, one too. Yeah, you're actually, Lex you're, is all about TV. You're, so. you're absolutely right, though, because that's what I was thinking about when we, when we first said we were going to talk about Aaron Sorkin here. I thought, well, that's the best way for me to describe his dialogue, is that sort of the L'Esprit d'Escalier, which is the, I think, translates the staircase wit, which is like when you're on your way out, you think of the thing you should have said. Yeah. And he, he does a great job of channeling that. But yeah, it is. It is sometimes you're like nobody actually talks like that. Very few people think of all that on the spot when you really need it to really deliver that that punch of you and, know. And rarely is it two people engaged in a single conversation who both seem to be managing yeah. to pull it yeah. out at the same but time. But at the same time, it's good TV. It's great TV. And right. it does. I feel like it makes you feel like you have the power to actually talk like that in real life. At least watching this and also growing up, I'd be like, all right, if I just indoctrinate myself into enough Amy Sherman Palladino and Aaron Sorkin, I will eventually be able to talk really quickly and wittily and apparently no, no, not so much. But when you occasionally get that moment, it's like, oh, yes, yes, I could totally be on a show for five seconds. So it's aspirational Um, TV. Yes, it's aspirational wit. I I was going to say that my, to address Lex's point about flaws, I think, and it sort of ties into what I think Dan was saying, the the idealism aspect of it, which again, I really admire, but it, it kind of at times converged towards the naivete um, and that's not quite the right thing because I think he's a smart guy and he knows what the problems are. But the idea that good things will just sort of float to the top, like there is sort of a meritocracy somehow, and that just by being really pure and well-intentioned, the truth will shine out, which is how I think we'd all like it to be. But What I do think was remarkable with the West Wing in particular is you know, my parents um, make... Uh, Rush Limbaugh look liberal and they love the West Wing despite, you know, it's clear uh, disagreement with their political perspectives. And I, I think what the way he can pull that off is that he's He's committed to it. You know, he, he doesn't shy away from the fact that he has a viewpoint, that he wants to express it. His characters are all going to be these idealistic people. And, you know, what was nice is that I found, at least, 
Arnold Vinnick comes in, the, you know, season six and seven, and he's not a Sorkin character. As a, a Republican that the liberals who share the liberal philosophies expressed on the show can appreciate and like, too. But mo- not every Republican character on the Sorkin years, either, was one he would vilify. You know, he, he took care to make sure that even when he had his viewpoint that he wanted well, to express, they, they hired he hired Ainsley Hayes. The other yeah, Ainsley right. Hayes. Ainsley Hayes. And uh, Cliff, but I, right. uh, Mark Furstein. Yeah. But what, what infuriates me with Aaron Sorkin is his seeming embrace of the fact that he understands absolutely nothing about technology. We've been hearing this from Lex for three days now. I, I'm furious about it. I have never stopped being furious about it. Lex, you mean you, you've never accidentally sent an email to an entire company when you only meant to send it to one person? That's on the newsroom. Uh, and it's, it drives the whole plot line of an episode. I mean, clearly also on the West Wing, Josh Lyman hates bloggers and uh, well, multiple shows. And, Mar- and Margaret brought down the entire U.S. government's email system by forwarding a spam. Right, she forwarded about, a spam message. About muffins or something? About muffins, right. Yeah. Love the calorie content of muffins. There was, well, I, I love this one episode of the West Wing. When you rewatch it, you just can't even believe it. They're in the situation room. So it's, you know, theoretically, the, you know, the, the tech-savviest of the tech-savvy should be in this room. They're using all sorts of fancy technology to do what they do. And so they're showing uh, the president this photograph. Why is it so blurry? Why is, it, why is this picture so blurry? Well, it was emailed, we think, using a modem. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but it's, I mean, he, he hates bloggers. He hates the internet. He hates the web. He doesn't understand how email works. He, he has this whole contrived plot line on, on the newsroom where, you know, I, I've, you have to set, use a semicolon if you want to send the email to everybody on the staff and don't use a semicolon if it's going to one person. And, of course, she screws it up and sends this email to the entire staff. And it's embarrassing. Well, which, is, which is sad because you get the feeling that if he were, you know, had people that would, you know, consult on him and really that he would listen to, that he would really be able to write a great story about technology. And in fact, of course, he has only not only written a movie, The Social Network, which largely deals with technology, but he's also writing the biopic of Steve Jobs that is not the one with Ashton Kutcher, um, which is based on, I believe, the um, loosely based on the Walter Isaacson book, but also it's sort of it's supposedly divided up into three scenes leading up to product announce, Apple product announcement. It'll be three real-time moments before he goes on stage at various Apple keynotes for the is it the original Mac? Yes. The iPod? The iPod and the iPhone. Is it the iPhone? Is it, I think it's the iPhone, right? I think I'm, so too. I'll yeah. believe anything. And the iPhone. But which, which is, I mean, and I know you can kind of get away with that by saying that, well, Apple stuff isn't always about the nitty gritty parts of technology. There's more to it than that. And I think that's part of the reason that in my mind, I, I liked the social network. Uh, I think it, it succeeded in telling me a story that I didn't think I was necessarily interested in hearing when I first went into it, and yet I found it compelling. Um, and it's not necessarily all about programming. I mean, that plays a part in it, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. That's not a thing that matters in the grand scheme of that plot. Um, but it, you're right that he does have a weakness with that and doesn't seem to have any interest in it or have any interest in learning about it more. I don't know that that, you know, obviously I don't think any of us say that undermines the rest of his oeuvre, as it were, but right. it is definitely a flaw in his writing. No, I think the weird thing is that he seems perfectly competent to talk about technology if it's in, if the topic itself at hand is technology, for instance, in the social network, and I have no doubt that the Steve Jobs movie will be well-written and well-represented, uh, but when it when he gets the option to use technology at the butt of his joke, um, he will 
gladly take it up. I mean, he he uses a similar scene like that in every single one of his shows, sometimes multiple times to great effect. Yeah, I think there's something in Sports Night where Casey or Dan's going to throw a computer out the window or something like that. No. Something like that. Yes. Well, uh, and it's just, so I, one of the things that has struck me also, and this might be in these sort of flaw things, and again, we're not trying to, we came not to bury Aaron Sorkin, but largely to praise him. It was a big love in a minute ago, and now, yeah, now it's all gone. That. Bad jerk. If you God tuned damn it. in if, now. If we walked in right now, we would kick now. Um, oh, look. The, no. the, um, the, he gets knocked for reusing stuff a lot, which I noticed in rewatching The West Wing um, because there's the episode in season seven where Arnie Vinnick and Matt Santos, who are the uh, contendants for the for presidency, are talking about having a debate. And they go off on this whole thing about we need to have a real debate, not something where we're limited to 30-second sound bites and rebuttals and all this. And that's brought, again, in the newsroom, at the end of the newsroom system season, they try to convince the, the Republican National Convention that we want to have a real debate where the candidates are forced to answer questions. Now, that's not necessarily repeating himself since he, since he didn't write that season of The West Wing. But I won't True. point that out in front of everyone. That's a fair point. Well, and if you've, uh, I'm sure everybody up here has seen it, but there's a clip out there where somebody did a bunch of cuts where Aaron Sorkin, almost word for word, reuses a whole lot of his stuff. It's nine minutes worth of cuts, in fact. Although I will point out, Lex, that in fact, in the season he did write where he goes up against, Bartley goes up against James Brolin. Yes. I think that the the Vinnick Santos thing is a callback to that. Agreed, 100%. Now, do you know, by the way, just offhand, the one episode of The West Wing in which Sorkin himself appears? Here's an episode of The West Wing. He's in, he appears in the social network. He's in the series finale of The West Wing when uh, Santos is on the inauguration platform and there's a bunch of dignitaries oh, he's there. Sitting the back, he's yeah. sitting there on yeah. the stage as if he's some important I know political he, he, figure. He appears in the social network as a ad exec. Yes. Briefly. Um, and he appeared, actually, he did quite a memorable turn, not on one of his own shows, but on uh, Entourage. He appears as himself in several episodes as a somewhat parodical version of himself, what with his uh, problems, run-ins with the law and with uh, drugs and stuff like that. I uh, mentioned 30 Rock, but he also uh, he appears on 30 Rock as, I believe, himself and yes. in, in a walk-and-talk that's uh, hilarious. He, he's, he has a good sense of humor about himself in some aspects. It's He's okay with humor when it's him parodying himself, but he seems to be very, very scared of the bloggers and the, you know, the folks. The internet, they're untamed. Yeah. If he doesn't get a say, then it's, then it's not funny. Well, going back to the, to the issues of, like, you know, like not fact-checking the technology or something, I think it also ties in, especially some of his earlier stuff, where it was, it was pretty clear, like, like, wasn't he also the showrunner uh, for, for West Wing and Sports Night? I, I mean, so, like, yeah. like, he was the ultimate authority, and I think there's sometimes when uh, he didn't really have people there to say, you know, no, or, uh, you know, maybe we should have someone look over this. And so... You, you had the issue of, and I think this also comes into the, the preachiness a little bit, where, like, this is Aaron Sorkin's show, and it's going to be like this, and you don't have enough uh, input to kind of well, temper and, those and he things. Famously, he famously overruled, I mean, he rewrote, I think, almost every episode of The West Wing that he was involved in. Yeah. Because he, he took that final executive sort of pass and said, you yeah. know, I'm going to basically make sure that this is all up to snuff. Well, you I, know, 
Sorry. Uh, well, I, I remember at one point when he was doing both Sports Night and West Wing, like he was writing all the scripts for both. I mean, that's that's insane. So I think he was also doing a lot of cocaine too. So right. he was that, that uh, affected it. What I like to look at is the the fun game to play is who is the Sorkin facsimile character in Sorkin's writing. In the West Wing, I decided I think it's everybody, but and, mostly Josh. Right. And I think that in, in Sports Night, it's, I think it's both Casey and Dan. And then when you get to when you get to Studio 60, we have uh, Matthew Perry's character, Matt Albee. He's clearly... He, the, 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 the amazing thing about Matt Albee, who writes this Saturday Night Lifestyle show, is that he writes every episode himself. He lays off the writers because they're not good enough. So he's going to write every episode himself. And how does he do that? How does he work this magic? How can he accomplish such great writing? And it's, it's really... I mean, I really like Aaron Sorkin. I want to be clear. But I think it's kind of embarrassing when you write a character who is clearly meant to be you, and he is just so perfect. So, so you thought it was Josh in The West Wing. I would have said... Maybe Josh, but also Sam. You know, perfectionist writer, always wants to get all the facts in there, wants to educate people, wants to outsmart people, wants to have witty yeah, see, dialogue. I think it's all the assistants, right? Because Toby, too. Because yeah. Toby takes it all so seriously. Yeah. And he's like, he, he, he throws away his scripts over and over, and over again. And, he wants to be Sam, but he's really Josh. All right. We all want to be Sam. I think we all know that he's John Hoynes. <laughs> Clearly. Um, I think it's funny, particularly in the case of West Wing, that 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 it as a phenomenon took on such a life of itself. I mean, even even after he left, I think you know we all would agree that the show did suffer sort of a precipitous decline in the next season. And I'd say season and a half. I think towards the end of season six, it starts to pick up, and I think season seven is actually pretty good, though it's not as good as when he was. It's a different it. show. It's it is a different show. It's in fact it's two shows. It's the campaign. And the home front, the home front stuff is really boring for the most part. And the campaign is a much better show, um, which is just goes to show you that the farther they got away from what he was doing, the more they were able to do their own thing and do that well, rather than just trying to do a bad impression of Aaron Sorkin. But it's funny to me that it took on a life of its own because we're still here. And they, you know, you look at the there's Twitter accounts for all the West Wing characters, including these like really really minor characters who only show up in a couple episodes. Like, I think, like, Hal Holbrook's character, who's, like, an undersecretary of state, has a Twitter account. Um, and for me, it was uh, uh, during the election, they got a whole bunch of the cast back together to do a sort of a nonpartisan ad for a judge election who was uh, Mary McCormick, who played um, Kate Harper. Her aunt, I guess, was running in sister. Uh, Michigan. Her sister. Was it sister? Okay. Um, but what was impressive, you know, obviously, they went out and they filmed this whole thing, and it basically reads just like a West Wing episode, even though they don't, you know, you know, really acknowledge that fact anywhere. And, and it always was one of those things that makes me think, you know, don't you want to kind of imagine that they just, they get together sometimes and play West Wing? Like, <laughs> I really, in my head, that's, you know, I have the same thing with Firefly, too, where it's like, sometimes they just hang out and, like, you know, pretend they're still on a spaceship, right? But of course. Now, how do you feel about some of the other Sorkin movies we didn't talk about yet, like Moneyball and... Charlie I really like Moneyball. Well. I read the book Moneyball and then saw the movie. Uh, I don't think Sorkin wrote the book. I, you know, I like Moneyball. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I like baseball more than you do too. And so, and I actually was familiar with some of the stuff going into it. Um, it's, it's a weirdly, I think we talked about this. It's a weirdly structured movie, as is, I would argue, Social Network is also a very per, peculiarly structured movie. Well, biopics. In general, well, when are the people hard are still to, living, yeah, which is the tricky part. I was, what I was saying, I was comparing this the other night. It's like Lincoln, like okay, he dies at the end, like the story's over. He what? But, you know, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg's spoiler still alert until he comes back and hunts vampires. You know, 
I, I think that the the issue I had with the social network, I thought it was a good movie, but it feels like it never really gets started. There's you know there's enjoyable scenes and they connect well and it's well plotted, I guess, but it just it feels like it, when you watch a Sorkin scripted thing, you're waiting for it, when it's going to get really heated up and intense, and it doesn't. It, it's yeah. I mean the he he does a nice job I think of depicting those characters and I think that um, not Michael Sarah does a really good job in the movie but I don't know I just I feel like you're just constantly waiting for it to kick into high gear and it doesn't I mean it's tepid in places and it's definitely probably the calmest Sorkin movie that I've ever watched yeah. but a lot of it does take place sitting so there's that uh, there's a lot of typing in, yeah there's a lot of typing they need the treadmill but, masks I mean in reality, Sorkin's best opportunity is when he has two characters bouncing off of each other, yeah, one there, on there one. There wasn't enough walking. In there was not enough walking. Numbers. There are too many Sitting and talking is not the same as walking. Yeah. That's not Sorkin's thing. I mean, there's, there's some of the deposition stuff that's really biting and really sparkling. You're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the Aaron Sorkin that I know and love. Um, at the same time, I really enjoyed the film. Uh, but it's. I agree with you that it's not necessarily representative of what an Aaron Sorkin movie can be. That actually brings up a question of, like, should an Aaron Sorkin movie be an Aaron Sorkin movie? I mean, if it's... An Aaron Sorkin like, joint, if you will. Uh, no, I will not, but... <laughs> I'm sure he will. Oh, okay, I will. Um, you know, like, like if we go to a movie and it doesn't have, like, you know, some real big witty lead-up and, and something like that, like, is that a downer, or does that mean that he's actually... Getting better. Or? I mean, I think part of it is he's been so consistent with. He, I mean, he's sort of like got his Sorkin repertory players and his Sorkin repertory plot themes because he has so consistently returned to the same well. You know, he's going to cast Josh Molina in just about everything, and he's going to have high stakes in many things, or, or people are going to treat their things like they're high stakes, whether norms think they are or not. And I think that because he's gone to that well sometimes, so many times, and done it quite adeptly in ways that entertain us. Yes, I want him to keep doing those things. That's what I want to see when I go to a Sorkin movie. I don't want to see an, uh, a Quentin Tarantino movie or a Steven Spielberg movie when I go to see Aaron Sorkin. No I, one wants I, to feel like Aaron Sorkin. And, and I, in some ways, I know his background comes from theater and he started in movies, but I feel like he does a better job with the TV stuff where he has a larger canvas and there is this ability to do continuity and to sort of string things out, plot arcs that develop over the course of a season as opposed to having to cram it in a couple hours uh, to me, that seems a better métier for him. Like, you know, he, he can... Yeah, I use a French word there for you. Yeah. Um, I, I just feel like that's... I, I've seen, you know, most of his later movies also. Charlie Wilson's War, which is has, again, enjoyable move, moments, but it is it is kind of strung together strangely. It doesn't necessarily feel like, oh, my God, that's a great movie and one that I want to keep, you know, watch over and over again. I saw it once, and it kind of faded from memory. Um, but I, you know his shows I'll go back to and revisit time after time, uh, except for Studio Sixty. <laughs> I go back and rewatch. You know what? I rewatched Studio Sixty you, last year. I know you defend year. Studio Sixty. No, I do defend Studio Against Sixty. All enemies, foreign and domestic. Yes. You know what? There's a lot of it that Sorkin did not get right in terms of how backstage actually runs. But that said, I think there are a lot of great moments in that. And also, I love Bradley Whitford. I love seeing him on stage. And I think Danny Trepp is one of his best Sorkin. Like, I love Josh, but I almost think I prefer Danny Tripp to Josh. Wow. I can't That's believe this strange. is happening right now. Yeah. My favorite character in that show was, um, who was, who's the kids in the hall vet who shows up? Is it Mark McKinney? Yes. Mark McKinney shows up as the writer, the That's really, the really writer. depressed writer. Oh, he's, he's my great. favorite character on that show. Well, yeah. that's a great example of how Sorkin can use multiple episodes to build up a character. I mean, 
when they when two characters sit down and co- have a conversation in a Sorkin show, it's not they're never talking about the topic at hand. It's always circuitous, and they they end up talking about something completely different. And it's kind of hard to do that in a film. You know, you can't you can't really talk around a subject for two hours unless you're Steven Spielberg and you're writing Lincoln because Lincoln, you know, has the you have the background to have him give these big arcing speeches and bon mots. And, right, they didn't you know. need to tell the story because we all knew it. Yeah, exactly. So could, yeah. But when you're trying to do a biopic or when you're trying to do something like that, so, I mean, it'll be really, really interesting to see if he can tackle something like the Steve Jobs movie, for instance. I almost like the idea of doing really long scenes. We've seen what happens when Sorkin does short scenes in a movie where he has to do a lot of setup. And it's, you, don't, you don't get a lot of the back and forth. I think my objection to I, I like Studio 60. I don't love it. I think my objection is that he first of all I don't think he really got or gets how to write sketch comedy. I know you and I have disagreed about this, but some of the sketches that are supposed to be the most hilarious are really really not. Oh no, I agree with you there. I think, I think it's it's, really it's a, not a funny show. I think it's impossible to go out and say, you know, this is the show that is the funniest show that everybody right. loves. Like that kind of build up you just you're you're, right. you're screwed. So then so I feel like he, he gets afraid very early on in the scripting of that show and moves away from what it set out to be. And then you get the very broad characters, John Goodman's character. John Goodman is so great on the West Wing and then just so broad and bizarre as that judge on, the, on Studio 60. And then he sort of gets a little bit self-referential where he's talking about, we've got to boost ratings, we should do things like have pregnancies and have people get locked you know, we should do, you know, where they're locked in a room and then, hey, Amanda Peet's character gets pregnant and then they're locked on the roof in that same episode where they're talking about it. It gets a little bit a meta, self, bizarre. Self-referential. Yeah. And, I mean, I do think, and I think that is a, some of that, the newsroom suffers from also. I, I, I want to talk about the newsroom. Yeah, I know that you don't like the newsroom. I actually do like it. I think it took a, I think it took a while to develop and get to a place where I really liked it and was in favor of the characters because there are so many characters on that show who do start off as unlikable. Um, and I kind of, as the season progressed, I found that I liked Will, the Jeff Daniels character, more and more. Uh, he reminds me, in the later episodes, he starts to remind me more of, like, Toby from the West yep. Wing, where he's just, he's cranky, but he's, like, underneath, it's because he's so frustrated with the fact that all this stuff has never worked out. See, I, I like the newsroom, but I think it, I don't like the women on the newsroom. I think that they're, I, I think that Sorkin has been attacked somewhat unfairly sometimes for not writing women well. And I think that it is a fair critique on the newsroom. I do want to say, though, when you just mentioned Will, I think Will McAvoy. I don't think there's a single, and I challenge anyone to defy me, I don't think there's a single writer out there with better character naming chops than Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> Will McAvoy, Toby Ziegler, Sam Seaborn, Josh no, Lyman, he does do a good job Josiah Bartlett, come on now. They feel very real and at the same time very elevated names. Theatrical. Yeah. Zuckerberg, who would have thought? Yeah, Zuckerberg, right. come on. Yes. Sorkin and Women was something that I kind of wanted to talk about, but I'm always wary about it because I do feel that Sorkin gets an unjust rep for the amount of, oh, well, he doesn't treat women, he doesn't write women well, and he writes them as crazy, but not manic pixie dream girl crazy, just crazy out of their mind. And there are some characters I agree with, but... um Who's um, Emily Nisman's character on, on Newsroom? I don't know what um, her name is. Which one? Emily Mortimer. Uh, Mac. Mac, yeah. All right, so Mackenzie is a little bit crazy, but at the same time, someone who clearly has PTSD, who's been in overseas for the last three, four years and is coming back and adjusting to real... Like, there's a lot about her character that rings true, and I think she's overwritten at parts, but at the same time, I get... 
I get really frustrated reading articles online that's like, as a woman, you should feel ashamed of the way that Aaron Sorkin writes women. And I'm like, you know what? That hardly I seems have, fair. Well, no. I mean, I, I have my problems I mean, with the way that Aaron Sorkin... Fe- television. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean... I'm not saying that Aaron Sorkin deserves a gold star and a 10 out of 10 on the way he portrays women, but he certainly does it a whole lot better and a whole lot more realistically than a lot of other writers do. And I, and I, I hate to do this, but we are actually running up against our time limit right now. We're so used to having an hour and a half to two hours to talk about the subject to death. And then have Jason have only a 45-minute time slot. So I'm going to ask you, does anyone want to leave us with a, a favorite Sorkin line or moment? Dan Frakes, you got one? No. No, I hate. Yeah, you're. I'm you too can, on the spot. I'm too. Yeah, Jeff. I can only carry on a, a, a tradition. Um, I need to do some glenning. I I worked with Josh Molina's uh, sister. That there has to be some glenning in every in, That's in, incomparable podcast. It's a requirement. Over. Perhaps we should explain glenning to the assembled audience. We I don't think we, we don't should. have time. No. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have time. Go 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 to theincomparable.com. There's there is a 127 episode archive in which you will find out about the origins of glenning and many another thing. Glenn Flashman has been and knows everybody. The of. um, I, I have about 250 favorite West Wing episodes, but. The one that, that came to mind when you raised this question here is uh, the scene where uh, Jed Bartlett talks down the Dr. Laura-style radio host oh. who doesn't... Uh, uh, he, he goes through the, her whole religious oh, right, uh, the, opposition to at the, uh, homosexuality. At the, at the radio correspondent. Right, in right, the White House. Right. And she doesn't stand up Right, for and at the, end of, at the end of this teardown where he talks about, you know, should I stone my wife because she worked on the Sabbath or whatever else, he says... In this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. And then she slowly, ashamedly has to stand up. God, I just love that. I could watch that over and over again. Ren, you got a favorite? Uh, every single moment in sports night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, I, I, love, I love a lot of sports night. It is my favorite go-to show that I just put in. So, I, I don't know. I, I will Natalie and Jeremy. I will steal my favorite, my favorite sports night moment, which I think of a lot as a writer, which is an episode where Dan decide, like, has writer's block. Um, and there's a section where Casey says, it's not that bad. Let me see what you got. The Flyers played the, you know, the Devils tonight in a hockey game, and they won 4-3. to three. <laughs> yeah, So that, that to me bad. resonates for me as a writer, because I have days like that. Uh, anyway, we're going to have to wrap up here. I'd like to thank my panel, Serenity Caldwell, Lex Friedman, Jeff Carlson, and Dan Frakes. This has been The Incomparable. Thanks for coming by, and we'll see you next week, I guess.